try it again. Hi, church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Danielle Couch. I am a covenant partner here and a member of the young adult community. And I have the honor of reading scripture this morning. As we draw closer to the end of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is drawing us closer to and deeper into Christ. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is our greatest joy, deepest hope, and sure foundation. Our passage for today is Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I trembled with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who are warned from heaven. And at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Danielle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Bob Fuller, and I'm the senior pastor here at First Presbyterian Church, and it is so good to see you all today. Uh, you know, today I was making other plans as I was beginning to pre prepare for this Sunday, thinking about Memorial Day, and got an interesting call a little bit earlier this month. My, uh, my mom gave me a call to ask if I still had Uncle Watt's book. Now, my Uncle Watt was a chaplain in the Seabees, which was the naval engineers in World War II. And he was, of course, a, he was a Presbyterian pastor. He was several generations before me. My great uncle died several years ago, um, but he, he wrote a, a book about his time in the South Pacific with the, with the Naval Corps of Engineers, with the Seabees. And, and she, she called me to ask me if I still had this, this book. I said, yeah, I do. She said, she said well, well, don't sell it. It's worth $125. <laughs> I said, cash? Uh, 
I said, don't worry, Milo, I'm not going to sell it. It's, it's, it's worth a lot more than that to me. But, but as I was thinking about that, and, and I, you know, I, was, I was thinking about the, the great honor that I've had as a pastor over the last 25 years to, to, to officiate at so many memorial services for those who, who served in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, throughout the, the wars of the War on Terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, and and Panama, Grenada. Um, it seems like I've, I've served families who have lost loved ones who've served in all of these different contexts. And so that was, that was really kind of shaping what I was gonna be talking about today. But then something else happened this week. As we came into Memorial Day this weekend, we were all set to remember those who gave their lives for this country. But then we're struck with, we were struck with something that we'll never forget. On Tuesday, as you all know, a mass shooting took place at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. There were 19 children, two teachers killed, two officers were wounded. And on that day, last Tuesday, Uvalde, Uvalde joined the grim role of other communities like Buffalo and Orlando and Santa Fe, Columbine, Charleston, Tampa, all these others, Sutherland Springs, Parkland. All of these had personal connections to people in this room in one form or another, whether it was through business connections or through family connections, whatever they may be. And so this is not just an abstract news story. This act of unspeakable violence has devastated an entire community. It has shaken our country. It has shaken our state, shook that community, and it has shaken us personally. It's shaken our hearts, shaken our minds, it's shaken our spirits. We're personally shaken. We are spiritually shaken. And it is affecting us in ways that we aren't even fully recognizing yet. Last night, uh, we, we went to the Alamo Dome with with thousands of other parents to celebrate the graduation of my son and his senior class from high school. And of course, we were all there to celebrate that big event, but I can tell you, as I looked around, I could see that I wasn't the only dad, I wasn't the only parent, I wasn't the only administrator or teacher who was looking around. There was sort of this thick air of vigilance over the Alamo Dome last night. Everybody was just a little on edge wondering, does everything look right? Is there anything out of place? Is anything wrong here? It's going to affect us in ways that we are not even expecting it to affect us. But an entire community, an entire country, families, all of their lives have been shaken to the earth. The events of last Tuesday remind us of how fragile life can be, especially when they're shaken by war by natural disaster, by disease, by trauma, by grief. Our lives are shaken in the face of death. And whenever something like this happens, our peace is not just shaken, it is shattered. Well, today we are going to be focusing on the last two verses of the passage that Danielle just read for you this morning. Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God 
is a consuming fire. This is God's word. It is the truth, and it is given in love. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Now, there is a historical and technical aspect to this passage that we need to get through to understand it, but there's also very much a heart side to this passage, and I want to get to that point so that we walk out of here today understanding both dimensions of what the author of Hebrews has, has written for us today. The early Christians of the book of Hebrews knew what it was like to have their lives shaken. If you look back at chapter 10, the author of Hebrews praises them for their endurance. He says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is that better possession? What is that abiding one of which the author of Hebrews is speaking? You see, this community, they understood suffering. They knew what it was like to be shaken. And once again, these people who had been so desperately shaken, to them, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't give up on Jesus. You can still trust him. You can still bet your life on him. Don't turn back. Even when everything else is shaking, he, his kingdom is unshakable. And then the author offers us a contrast between two realities, between what he calls two kingdoms. There are two types of kingdoms. One that has a, has a lifespan. It has a shelf life. And the other, which is an eternal kingdom that has no end. One is shakable and the other is unshakable. And he compares these realities using an example from, from, using several examples actually from Israel's history. Now these were terms, these were examples that would have been familiar to these early Christians. He goes first all the way back to the book of Exodus, to the story of Moses, and takes them back to Mount Sinai. And using the words of Exodus 19, he describes Mount Sinai, the mountain where God gave the people the Ten Commandments and his covenant law. But listen to his description. He describes it as a sight to behold, a terrible sight it was a mountain covered with blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. That's a storm. He says they could hear the voice of God, but it sounded like the blast of a trumpet, so powerful and so penetrating that they begged no further messages be spoken to them. Imagine somebody just walking into a closed room and just hitting one of those air horns, so shrill and piercing that you just want, to, you just want it to stop. And they'd been warned that no one should come near the mountain. Don't even get close to it. Don't even touch it upon pain of death. That even a beast that, a beast that touches the mountain, it shall not be saved. It shall be stoned. It should be put to death. And it was so terrifying 
that even the mighty Moses said, I trembled with fear. So overwhelming. And yet this mountain is important. It was the mountain upon which Israel's national identity was born. It was a blazing, smoky forge that bound them together as God's own people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And even though the first real king of Israel was Saul, and Moses was never really a king, Moses was the founder. And this is the moment when Israel became a nation among the nations of the earth. This is when Israel became a place for the people of God, a place in the world for the people of God. But we have to remember that that kingdom was a temporal kingdom. Eventually, even that kingdom gave way to politics and to a king. It was political, it was geographical, and it was historical. It engaged in public works, it engaged in commerce and international diplomacy, it fought in wars, it had alliances. And like other kingdoms of the earth, it became vulnerable, shakable. Eventually, the kings became corrupt. The society became unjust, and the kingdom fell, overrun by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, given a break for a little while by the Persians, but then by the Greeks, and finally by the Romans. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And that was the story of the kingdom of Moses, the old religion, the shakable kingdom. But then the author of Hebrews says that there's another kingdom. There is one kingdom that will not fall. That is the kingdom of God. As he describes it, it's the kingdom of Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word even than the blood of Abel. Now this is the heavenly kingdom the new Jerusalem that he's talking about, but it is closely connected. It is known by its connection to the real Jerusalem, to the earthly Jerusalem, to the Mount Zion that they all could see and that they all knew. You see, Mount Zion is the uppermost part of Jerusalem. Historically, it's so significant. It was the place where King David offered his own life to God to spare the lives of the people of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 24, 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Spare their lives and take mine the place where God spared Isaac and substituted a ram rather than have Abraham sacrifice his own son. 
It was the place where Solomon built the temple, the place of sacrifice, the place that was the physical representation of God's spiritual presence in the world. Zion was the place of redemption. And the founder of this kingdom, says the author of Hebrews, is Jesus. Now this kingdom, by contrast, is an eternal kingdom. This is the kingdom based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which fulfills the covenant law with God's covenant grace. Jesus began his public ministry declaring that a new reality was taking over the world. Matthew 4, 17 says, repent, for what? For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. You see, in the old kingdom, the people replaced God as their king with a human king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we learn that the elders of Israel came to the prophet Samuel and said, appoint for us a king to judge us so that we'll be like all the other nations. See, there's peer pressure even back then. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And Samuel didn't want to do it. But the Lord said to Samuel, give them their king. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In the old kingdom, the people decided that they should be in control. In the eternal kingdom, however, God is still on the throne. And therefore, that eternal kingdom is unshakable because God is king. The eternal kingdom has never suffered from faulty leadership. It's unshakable because, as Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, that can mean that it's located in heaven, but it can also mean that it's not like the other kingdoms of the world. Consider this. The kingdom of God doesn't depend on wealth or armies or natural resources. It's not vulnerable to economics or political power or geography. It is eternal. It is permanent because it's based on what God has done in Christ Jesus The author of Hebrews is not asking us to try and guess what God's going to do because we don't know what God is going to do. Rather, he wants us to trust in this kingdom because it's based on what God has already done in Jesus Christ. He wants us to believe and to know in our bones that he really loves us. Why? Because Jesus Christ, while we were sinners gave his life for us. He stretched out his arms on the cross to prove how much he loves us, to prove how far he is willing to go to demonstrate his love for us. And he also wants us to base our hope on this kingdom because we know that he has the power to make a difference in our lives. How do we know that? How do we know that he has the power to make a difference in our lives now and forever? We proved it by raising his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. He did what no one else could do to prove what no one else could possibly claim. Jesus promised to lay down his life for us, and he did. He promised that God would raise him from the dead, and he did. 
And this proves that our God is unshakable and that he keeps his promises. Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The only word he left out was unshakable. So here's the basis for God's eternal kingdom. What God has done in Jesus Christ is already finished. It's already happened. It can't be undone. It's a matter of record. It's a fact of history, and it cannot be undone. What God has done in Jesus Christ cannot be taken away. Therefore, while the old system was shakable and obsolete, and now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the new system is unshakable. The temporal, political kingdom of Israel has been transcended by the eternal, spiritual kingdom of God. Now that's the technical, the historical side. That's the setup. That's what he wants you to understand. That's the foundation. But here's where he begins to get into the heart of the matter. The author of Hebrews is saying that based on this, knowing that everything that God has, has given is unshakable, don't go backwards. Don't bet your life on things that are shakable. Bet your life on the one who is unshakable. Hold on to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so here's the question that I want to ask all of us today. Are we betting our lives? Are we betting our self-worth, our identity, our security, our purpose, our eternity on things that are shakable or things that are unshakable? Are we betting our lives on our power or his power? On our knowledge or his knowledge? On our opinions or his truth? On what are we basing our hope? Here's another way to look at it. Are we looking to ourselves as king or are we looking to him as king? Who's sitting on your throne? The prophet Isaiah warned the people of Israel that they had to bet their future. Excuse me, he warned them that they had bet their future on the wrong things. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet says, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. This is Isaiah's way of saying that they had decided to, to quit taking God seriously and just trust in themselves. They had put everything into things that don't last. So what kingdoms do we trust that can and will be shaken? Is it your business or your career? A political affiliation, social relationships, your legacy. All of these things are great, but they're only great until they become kingdoms. 
Another way to say that is they're all great until they become idols. Idols that we serve, kings to which we bow. Because all of these things can be shaken to the ground. All of our kingdoms are shakable. And they're all haunted by fear and only last as long as we can tightly grip our control around them. But his unshakable kingdom is based on what he has done in Jesus Christ. His kingdom is built on his love and the sovereignty of God. I want you to think about this. When Jesus taught us to pray, he told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Here's the challenge. Do we have the desire? Do we have the courage to pray for the unshakable, even if it means giving up our shakable control. Here's another way to look at it. Do we have the courage to pray not only thy kingdom come, but also to pray, Lord, help me let my kingdom go? The author of Hebrews does not say that our faith is unshakable. How many of you all feel like you've got an unshakable faith? Never any doubt, never any questions, never any challenges. Good. All of us know that there are times when our worlds are rocked, times like last Tuesday. And that's why this kingdom is not built on our faith and the author of Hebrews is not declaring that our faith is unshakable. He is declaring that the kingdom of God is unshakable because our God is himself unshakable. One of my good friends says, you know, none of this surprises God, which sometimes sounds, you know, incredibly light and other times is profound and sublime. He is unshakable. He is stronger than the old system. He is stronger than the conquerors. He is stronger than the evil that stalks our world. He is the mountain that goes to the roots of the world. And we are not confident because we know what we can do or what money can do or what politicians or the government can do. We are confident because of what he can do. And so today... This Memorial Day is a good day to remember our national motto. You see it on every dollar bill. It says, in God we trust. Sadly, I think that there are more people who put their trust in the dollar bill. In these moments, do we have the courage to trust in God? Do we really believe that we can not only bet our lives, but the lives of those we love on him? If you go back to John chapter 11, when Jesus arrived at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus's sisters met him on the road. And this is what they said to him. They said, Jesus if you had only been here, you could have done something. 
kind of paraphrasing. Where were you? Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? If you'd been here, you could have kept our brother from dying. Where were you? And Jesus answered him this way. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then you know what he did? He asked them a really provocative question. I mean, I grew up in a culture, I grew up in the South, where you don't ask people uncomfortable questions at uncomfortable times. But they had asked him, where were you? Why weren't you here? Why didn't you do something? And he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he looked at him and asked him a question that left absolutely no room for, for gray areas. He said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And it wasn't just a question for them. It's a question for us. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You've heard me say before that what God allows, he redeems. Do you believe this? You know, like those parents in Uvalde. He was a witness to the death of his own son, his own precious child. He knows. He gets it. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, and the curtain of the temple was split from top to bottom, that wasn't just a supernatural event. That was an explosion. That was the ripping of the heart of God. That was the father rending his clothes like a father in grief at the death of his son. The father of the universe, the creator of the universe, tore his clothes in agony over the death of his son. gets it. But just as God did not let his son die in vain, neither will these children and neither will these teachers die in vain. I have no idea how God is going to heal or restore or redeem the tragedy in Uvalde, but I do believe that he cares about those people and I believe that because Jesus Christ gave his life to prove it. And I believe that he has the power to make a difference in their lives and in that community, in the lives of those families and, those, and, and everyone who was there, now and forever. I believe that because he raised his own son from the dead to prove that he has that power, that he can make a difference now and forever. It's a hard, it's a provocative question for them and for us. But based on what God has done in Jesus Christ, do you believe this?
you believe this? In whom and in what kingdoms do we trust? Pastor and author Josh Weedman has written that as followers of Jesus, we lean on God's sovereignty. While this doesn't diminish the pain and the shock of the depravity we see in the world, which we should lament, it's a supreme comfort to know that God allows good and evil to happen in our lives with purpose. And yet, in the stinging moment of hot tears in our eyes, it's easy to forget God's sovereignty. And yet, God's sovereignty is also the hope we have that God works all things together for our good and for his ultimate glory and plan. Do we believe this? The great Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards described it this way. He said, every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransomed spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There will be the infant of days that we've lost below through grace to be found above. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints. There we shall have company with the patriarchs and the fathers and saints of the Old and New Testaments and those of whom the world was not worthy, with whom on earth we were only conversant by faith. Do you believe this? Shakeable or unshakable? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In God, we trust. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, is this what you meant when we said that we would be tossed around by the wind and the waves? Is this what it looks like to be tested? Is this what it looks like, feels like to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, even in the midst of all of this, O oh Lord, we cry out for you. We cry out for hope. And Lord, I cry out just based on the, the proof of your death and resurrection that I believe this. And I know that so many in this room do, but I know that there are others who don't. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us all to just speak with love, the truth, compassion and kindness to one another that you would help us to be the, the arms and the legs, the hands and the feet the voice, the back of Jesus Christ Lord we are broken, we are shaken, we are shattered but we know that you take broken things and you put them back together you restore which is that which has fallen, you redeem that 
sold for lesser things. And you've done it all by your son, Jesus Christ, whose kingdom is not of this world, but will be one day when he returns. You've done it all by his blood and by his life. And you've done it all not so that we would not grieve, but so that we would not grieve as those who have no hope. So Lord, when we are shaken, be the foundation, be the ground upon which we stand, be that mountain that goes to the root of the earth to which we may hold and that we may climb and that we may see and know that you are God.